Everyone has an authentic and interesting story that we can all relate to. On Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hixie, our podcast gives these stories the space to be heard. Along the way, we will laugh, learn, and appreciate this interesting and crazy journey called life. Now, here is Stock and Hixie for the most authentic conversation you will hear today. Welcome to another episode of Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hixie. Stock, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, but not as not as good as you. I, I wish our listeners could see you today. You uh, you got a really nice Christmas pullover on. Oh well, thank you. I have, I appreciate that. I I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, you look very very professional today. Well, uh, I'm not sure if you're being serious or you're not, but that's okay. I am being serious okay. with a with a with a with a glint of uh, sarcasm. Christmas dripping sarcasm. Christmas gleam. Okay. All right. <laughs> So look, before we get to our guest, uh, I do want to give a little shout out to our producer, Dr. Phil Day. Uh, Dr. Phil had a rough week last week, mm. as you know, Stock. Oh, yeah. Big uh, time. Kidney stone surgery. Uh, very painful stuff. Um, but he's he's out and he's back and he's in the booth today working hard. And uh, we're glad he's back. And Phil, uh, thank you for everything you do. We couldn't do it without you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I saw him as a matter of fact, this weekend out and about. And so I, I think he's on the men. Excellent. Excellent. So our guest today is chef Mike Matarazzo from, uh, he's the executive chef at Farmington country club. He was trained at the culinary Institute, Institute of America in Hyde park, New York, and also at the Greenbrier resort in West Virginia. He's been the executive chef at Farmington for almost 10 years leading a staff of over 70 people. Uh, in addition to his demanding work schedule, he started a, a, a life and leadership coaching business, uh, which originally began focused on people in the hospitality business. And he says he's going to, he'll tell us more about that, but he's kind of morphing that. And he's been doing that for a long time. He's got a website stock. He's got a podcast. Meanwhile, he's raising two young children with his wife, he and his wife. So uh, he's got a lot going on. Uh, he's a very open and transparent guy with his life experiences. If you read his bio on his website, um, it, it's amazingly honest and open. And um, I, I know that being a coach, and which he's going to talk to us more about with, with his experiences, uh, is, is a very successful business for him. And so welcome, Chef Mike. We're glad you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Um, Hicksy had referenced your um, website. And uh, when we had originally started talking to you about coming on, I went and looked at the website and it had the history and the accolades and the, and the culinary field, which are absolutely incredible. Yep. I mean, alone, what you've done in that sector or part of your life's incredible. But then it said, I forget the exact phrases, but it was almost like the real Mike, you know, mm -hmm. under everything else. Right. And it was incredibly transparent and honest and open and quite frankly, gutsy. And, uh, I immediately was drawn to the idea of having you on our Hixie suggestion when, when we read this stuff and what took you there, what had you what caused for the second part of the bio to be put on the website? So I guess the, you know, the second part and that kind of transparency is it really it was born from uh, my own discovery of self-awareness. And 
you know, when I speak about those things about myself and the challenges that I've had and the challenges that I've overcome, the challenges that I still have, uh, that helps me. Uh, and, and I also notice that it kind of opens the door to communication with other people who might not otherwise be so willing to share their own challenges. Uh, and it's, it's kind of brought me to, to where I am with, with the coaching thing is I realize that the more that I open up in front of, uh, individuals or groups of people, the more likely it is that they will let their guard down and feel more comfortable opening up to me, which has proven to be, you know, really helpful with the coaching thing and, and just helpful in general with, with giving people some support in their mm -hmm. lives. Totally. And, and the coaching, again, the coaching business started focused on hospitality people. Why? It did. Why did you see a need there? So it, you know, really started out um, during COVID when everybody kind of had to shut down and there were stay-at-home orders. Um, you know, we switched over like all restaurants did to kind of a a takeout program. But before that, you know, we were I was a nine-to-five chef, which mm -hmm. you know was kind of nice for a little a little while. It's kind of unique. Uh, so I had all this extra time, and you know, what do you do with all that extra time? A lot of my colleagues in the industry, you know, naturally just kind of gravitated toward researching food and techniques. Of course, we all wanted to spend more time with our families. That was first and foremost. But then you start to look and say, okay, so I have all this extra time. I can, you know, start to take some online cooking classes or virtual cooking classes and, you know, take some deep dives into some new techniques. Um, and that's all well and good. I, I, I feel like COVID, particularly with the hospitality industry, it exposed a lot of things, I think, in a, in a lot of industries. But uh, in hospitality, uh, it exposed the, the, the work habits of chefs and hospitality workers. It exposed some of the negative uh, sort of toxic environments that are inherent in the industry a little bit more. And when I looked around at my team and, and my coworkers and the, and the people around me in society and their response to the pandemic, this thing that, you know, nobody ever knew could, could happen, uh, it was a stressful time and everybody was kind of reeling and spinning out of control in their thoughts about what they're going to do and, and what is this. And uh, I thought it would be more helpful to spend my extra time figuring out how to connect with other people and and help them, particularly my team. Uh, so I, you know, I could have hired a, a life coach, I guess, to, to come in and speak with the team, but I decided uh, I, I would become a life coach. So that was the drive. Prior to you deciding to become a life coach mm -hmm. with the circumstances at hand, um, from talking with you in the past, it seemed like you had already started a journey of self-discovery around mental health. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to how I became aware, I guess, you know, I, I, my coaching practice is centered around helping, uh, leaders and high performing individuals. And when I was coming up as a young cook and a, an apprentice at the, the Greenbrier, we were, we were taught to push ourselves. That was kind of our mantra. You mm -hmm. know, whenever you were having a tough time or tired or whatever it was, everybody, you know, the chefs would look at you and say, push yourself, mm -hmm. push yourself. And now it's kind of a joke with all of us uh, graduated Greenbrier apprentices. Uh, so that's what I did. I, I, whenever I had a big challenge in front of me, no matter how I was feeling or, or what symptoms might have popped up in my life, I would push myself. 
And I did that when I tried out for the, the Olympic team in 2006. Uh, I felt like, you know, I'm going to put my head down now. I'm going to ignore everything around me. I'm going to have tunnel vision. I'm going to work morning till night. And I'm going to do nothing but practice for the tryouts. And, and I, I became the captain of the 2008 Olympic team. And that was great. So that, that proved to be a winning formula. I did the same thing in 2010 when I competed for Chef of the Year. Tunnel vision. I, I actually destroyed my credit uh, when, when I was going through all that. Not because I didn't have the money, but because mm -hmm. I didn't open my mail. I was in the kitchen constantly uh, and ignored everything else around myself. But I was pushing myself. Mm -hmm. it, it was a winning formula. Um, you know, fast forward to about 2013, um, where I had reached kind of my all time heaviest weight, uh, in life of, of about 420 pounds. Um, it was, it was a year when, um, you know, my, my wife was pregnant with our first son and, uh, you know, I, I was also a, a pretty heavy smoker. I was, I was smoking about a pack and a half of cigarettes a day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're that heavy and you're that you know, when you're living a certain lifestyle, uh, every day you're just afraid that any moment could be the end. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of really significant, um, you know, what I, what I thought were significant medical emergencies that brought me to the emergency room over the course of a year brought me to the, the decision to have 70% uh, of my stomach removed in mm -hmm. a vertical sleeve gastrectomy in 2014. And, uh, you know, I lost close to 200 pounds uh, just born again. Um, so I, I continued my journey at Farmington 2014. I started as the chef at Farmington and, uh, I was, I became the, one of the coordinators for what is called the chef to chef conference. Um, and every year we meet in a different place. It's for club and resort chefs. And in 20, 2020, um, right before it was like February, 2020, it was, mm -hmm. I think the first case of COVID was just discovered in the U S uh, I was asked to speak at the conference, uh, and the topic was the challenges of recruiting in the hospitality industry or, or in the kitchen specifically. And in my journey to create that PowerPoint, uh, I, was, I was really kind of sidetracked uh, by the experience I had had uh, a couple of years before preparing for the Certified Master Chef exam. So with all of the, the accolades that I have accomplished in my life, I was guided mainly by uh, this, this group of certified master chefs. There's, there's about, I think, I believe there's about 83 certified mm -hmm. master chefs in the United States. It's a, a, a very difficult test to pass. And I was fortunate enough to work with a lot of those guys. And um, yeah, in 2017, I kind of got the nod from, from one of my mentors in that group to take the test. And uh, I decided, you know, that's, that's probably what I've been waiting for. So let's do it. And when I started that journey, you know, I had to talk to my wife, make sure she was on board. I had to speak to my employer, make sure they were on board and my team, because I knew how I would prepare for that. And I would push myself mm -hmm. and I would put my head down and think about nothing but that. Mm -hmm. So for about eight months leading up to the exam, uh, seven days a week, I was in the kitchen without fail, uh, mm -hmm. morning till night, um, studying, practicing, writing recipes, traveling around the country to work with different master chefs. Uh, and, and I had that tunnel vision and I figure, you know, if I do this, I'm going to be successful because it always worked in the past. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately for me, what I didn't realize was the fact that I was in a much different place in my life with, with a family now, bigger responsibilities, a lot more at stake. Mm -hmm. And 
through the course of that journey, uh, a couple of times throughout those eight months, I experienced some physical symptoms uh, that I ignored um, when I when I got to points of practice sessions where it was high stress, uh, you know, blurred vision, increased heart rate, uh, disorientation, uh, shaking, chills, uh, all these things that it was it was really kind of odd and and alarming uh, sensation for me, but I ignored it all. And I, I convinced myself that it was just nerves. And then mm-hmm. once I got into the kitchen, I'd be fine. And I should just keep pushing myself. Never talk to anybody about it. And finally, I got to the exam. And it's an eight-day exam. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a pretty rigorous thing. On day two of the exam, uh, in the beginning of the day, it was a, a, a 12-hour prep day. And within the first half hour, uh, my mind and body switched over to this new sensation of symptoms uh, that I couldn't really put my finger on. And I endured that for the next 12 hours. Um, I don't remember cooking that day at all. There were people who were watching me through the window in the kitchen who, after the fact, told me they had no idea who they were watching cooking in the kitchen. Um, fast forward just a little bit. Uh, that day ended, luckily. And uh, at the end of 12 hours, I left the kitchen and I went outside to get some air uh, my best friend Drew had flown up from Florida to surprise me and, and watch me take the exam. And when he got outside, I was uh, on the ground and, you know, in a, in a pretty distressed state, um, hyperventilating. I, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. You know, it was a, it was pretty. Was it a panic attack? Uh, well, you know, come to come to realize now. Yeah, it okay. absolutely was. Uh, didn't know what it was then. It was super yeah. scary at the, at the time. And uh, went, went back in. They, they got me to go back into the kitchen to get a critique, which, uh, in case you were wondering, was not a very favorable critique. Um, and then we went back to the hotel. And when we got back to the hotel, uh, I still, you know, from that whole time of being outside to going back to the hotel, I still hadn't said a word to my best friend. Uh, and finally, when, when I was able to get my composure at the hotel, he looked at me and he said, he said, you got to tell me something here. And when I thought that I, I was able to speak and, and say something meaningful, the words that, that I said to him uh, were, were shocking to both of us. And, and what, I, what I said was, I, I want to see my kids. And it, it was so far from what either of us thought would come out of my mouth at that moment in time. But after, after the fact, so I, I withdrew myself from the exam mm-hmm. that evening. Um, because I, I, was, I was scared and I was confused and I, I didn't know what this was. After the fact, reflecting on that, I realized that every time something didn't go the way that I wanted it to uh, in my head, I would create the perception that I was failing. And my mind was jumping to the consequences of that. Now, these were fabricated consequences. These mm-hmm. were, you know, my family's not going to love me anymore. My employer is going to fire me. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, all these crazy things when in reality, none of that was true. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody would have supported me just as much. And they did. And that is really where the, the self-awareness journey came in. And it's where the direction of my talk in Charlotte in 2020 went. Um, I know I was supposed to talk about the challenges of recruiting, but I felt like a really big thing to talk about is not all these cliche uh, things that that recruiting strategists talk about. Uh, it's the fact in, in our profession as chefs, we are programmed 
to have that tunnel vision and push ourselves past the point of exhaustion, past the point of, of our stress threshold mm -hmm. to where, you know, we, we run ourselves into the ground. So I was somebody who followed the same formula that I had always followed to be successful in all my past endeavors. And I did the same exact thing this time and it killed me. And how much do you think of that um, mode of operation was learn behavior by being a chef and being an apprentice and having teachings and how much of that could have been as a result of your personality or the way you were brought up or, or is there a combination of the two? Do you feel like the chef part was the, what you were taught with the tunnel vision was the biggest part? Or do you feel like there was stuff, you know, last week we talked to the risk of family of origins issues that, that contributed to it, or was it just an amalgamation of them all? I, I think that, I think it's a little bit of a, uh, I think it's a little bit of combination of all of them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I was raised, you know, by uh, parents who instilled a really strong work ethic in, mm -hmm. in myself and my brother. So, you know, it was easy for me to buy into the, the, philosophy at the yeah. Greenbrier of push yourself mm -hmm. right now. There's a lot of people who started the program there that were not raised with that same work ethic mm -hmm. or, and they didn't make it through mm -hmm. the program. Right. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. It just means that I was wired a little bit differently. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that to that extent, I think, you know, my, my upbringing, uh, helped me absorb that information and be able to withstand, um, what that, what that was going to bring to me. Um, but I think ultimately, I think it is a lot of programming. I think that our actions uh, are born from the way that we see the world. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was put in a position to see the world a certain way. And mm -hmm. because of my experiences and my success using that philosophy, mm -hmm. why would I think anything different? Mm -hmm. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so I told that story in front of 450 strangers at the Chef to Chef conference in 2020, not knowing how that would go. It, it, it works until it doesn't work. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and you know, I had people lined up, uh, at the stage when I was finished, um, you know, crying, some of them strangers that I never met before. And, and they weren't in tears because of my story. They were in tears because of their story. And I had just opened a door in front of this group of otherwise really tough chefs, right. Who, who try to be tough all the time. And since I opened that door and, and let my guard down, they felt like it was okay to do that. Mm -hmm. And that was a big eye opener for me. And I said, you know, I'm always comfortable letting my guard down. Mm -hmm. If that helps people, mm -hmm. then I should turn this into something bigger. It took that event. It, it, it took multiple events, but you, you described this, I, you know, I left the program. I had to get out of there. I was clearly physically not right. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a new thing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you, uh, this self-awareness and this uh, wanting to help other people through your story, that, that was new or was that? I think, I think honest self-awareness was new. I think I, for a really long time, uh, I was really good at lying to myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and the more you lie to yourself, the more you start to believe it. And I think, you know, I was always good at talking about myself and talking about how I felt. Now, whether or not that was truthful, I don't know. Um, but I, I do think that uh, what came from this more than anything was my ability to be really honest with myself and then turn that into, you know, 
stories and, and, and insights for other people to kind of relate to. It'd be, uh, with that said though, is it, it's interesting that you have the, I don't know if it's a comfort level, but you understand the value it has in helping other people and not only helping yourself too, when you share and then you get the feedback, yep. you know, the whole thing reminds me of the uh, old saying, pain is the touchstone to all spiritual growth. Yeah. You know, it's like enough pain long enough, generally something's going to turn. And hopefully when it does turn and you develop some awareness, some positivity can come out of it. And it sounds like with you developing the coaching, um, there's positivity for you, but also for the people you help. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did you go to therapy at that moment, you know, back when you had that, the whole thing, or did you just say, I'm going to work this out on my own kind of thing? Yeah, I, I, I didn't go to therapy. Um, I, I kind of went into deep thought for a while. And, and of course my, my wife, Hannah was a huge source of support during that time. Um, and just helping, helping me through and listening, uh, and, and I guess asking the right questions, um, that kind of led me to, to, you know, what I should do with this, you know, and, um, you know, from there it just kind of became, you know, I'm going to, I never made a website before, you know, but I, there are plenty of tools out there for that. So I, you know, kind of fumbled through that. And I mean, geez, I think the website now is probably it's, it's 10th or 11th, uh, rendition mm -hmm. of, of the way it looks and everything. But, um, I think just, you know, the, the desire to want to educate myself on some new things and the desire to help people. And, you know, it's really kind of become, uh, a hobby for me more than anything, mm -hmm. you know, is to just really try to put myself out there and, and see how many people I could help in the process. So, so explain to us the, the coaching model. And uh, like Tom uh, Hicks, had referred to earlier, it was really, it began uh, as a coaching model for those in the uh, hospitality industry, but it seems to have grown past that now. Explain to us the model coaching relative compared to therapy and what you're working on with that model now and where you're going. So the thing, the thing that drew me to coaching, uh, as opposed to, uh, counseling and therapy or, or consulting, uh, is the fact that people don't like to be told what to do. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who will read self-help books, you know, uh, what's the guy's name? David Goggins, right? Mm -hmm. He's, you know, he's Navy SEAL. Uh, he's got an, a really inspiring set of stories. And if you read his stuff and you listen to his stuff, you can't help but walk away with a little jolt of inspiration. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, I'm not a Navy SEAL. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I've never been where David Goggins has been. Mm -hmm. I, I can only relate so much to his story. So that jolt of inspiration is kind of a temporary fix. It's funny you say that because when you listen to all of these speakers or they get you pumped up and mm -hmm. we're going to make a change today and you go out and you've got that adrenaline and that, that change agent, it lasts for about a week right? and then boom. Right. Yeah. It falls off. And that's because, you know, when you read somebody else's self-help book, you're reading a story about somebody else's self mm -hmm. who has their own experiences and their own environment and their mm -hmm. own perspective on things in hopes that their story about their self is somehow going to help you change yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, and it rarely ever does. It, it's always an inside you know? job, right? You've got to do the inside work for yourself 
right. to Absolutely. change everything else. Yeah, yeah. So when you when you consider a therapist, uh, you know, a therapist is I, I kind of talk about a therapist being like an archaeologist, right? A therapist kind of digs in your past and tries to help you figure out why things are the way they are mm -hmm. now. And a therapist will absolutely give you advice on a regular basis. And and I think there's a, a lot of value to that, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's plenty of people who really benefit from a therapist every day. And that's important. Um, but then there are people that I think, um, you know, just need a coach. And, and a coach... Uh, is somebody who rarely tells you what you should do. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I rarely give out advice to people. Um, coaching, the coaching model is based on strategic, open-ended questioning to help somebody get to the best answer for themselves. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's all about. Um, you know, some people ask me if I'm a consultant. I get calls sometimes from, from general managers and say, hey, our chef is a really good guy, but I think they could benefit from talking to you. Mm -hmm. And my answer is always, number one, why isn't your chef calling me right now? Mm -hmm. Number two, if you think that you're going to take somebody who has not convinced themselves or, or, or committed to changing their mindset on the way they view the world, then I can't, I'm not going to bring anything to the table for them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and that's how I view consulting. I think consulting can and has been successful for different companies and businesses. I think it's largely been unsuccessful for a lot of companies and a lot of businesses because without mindset change, mm -hmm. no matter how high performing of a leader you are, without mindset change, why would I, and I'm the CEO of a major corporation, how much am I really going to listen mm -hmm. to you when you tell me how I need to change my business model after all I've accomplished, right? So coaching is more, you know, tell me, tell me something this week that you feel like you're challenged with. And, you know, they'll, they'll mention, uh, you know, I really, I, I wish that I was able to balance my life a little bit more. I wish that I was able to, to spend more meaningful time with my family. Okay. So what is it that's stopping you from that, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then the questions start and based on what they say and based on what I hear, I can, I can pick out the little key points that I hear and turn those into a new question and lead them down a path, uh, that they, you know, probably didn't expect to go, um, which, you know, ultimately creates hopefully life-changing insights. Stock. Hicksy. How are you? Good, buddy. I'll tell you, look, I got to talk to you about something. Do it. You know, our sponsor. Antigua Threads. Yes. Antigua Threads. Have you seen their new website? I have. Dude, let me tell you something. They have now got new belts, new buckles. They've got a leather tote. I'm telling you, Chief. This tote. stuff. Yes, tote bags. This stuff is flying off the shelves. Handmade in Guatemala? Are you kidding? Yes, handmade in Guatemala. It's always handmade in Guatemala. Word. It is the, the designs are better than ever. Listen to me. I'm listening. If you go on their website and you put in the code authentic, guess how much you save when you make a purchase? 20%. You got that right, Chief. You get 20% off. AntiguaThreads.com. So in regard to your last comment, when you start working, uh, doing the coaching, and you ask your open-ended questions, how often does it go from 
hypothetically, hey, I want to spend more time with my kids. And you ask, okay, well, what can you do to make that happen? To, hey, I am really depressed right now in this job. Um, and uh, I don't know what to do. Where it goes from a um, more of a uh, peripheral issue to an internal issue. It, it would seem that it would drift that way sometimes as people maybe, I don't know, maybe they develop more insight or maybe it's always been there, but they've just been scared to go there until relationships developed. I don't know. Yeah, I would say probably most of the time it okay. goes it goes there. And I, I think the reason why is because everybody is familiar with the term self-awareness and mm -hmm. everybody has a pretty good idea or, or they think they have a pretty good idea of what that is. Uh, unfortunately, I think most people, they stop with how they feel on the surface. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's easy to know when you're happy or mad or sad, uh, angry. Um, it's, it's sometimes easy to know when you're depressed uh, or anxious. Um, and then people kind of stop there and they say, well, I'm self-aware. I know that I'm, I'm sad most of the time lately. Um, self-awareness is, is not only knowing the surface emotions, mm -hmm. but it's knowing the triggers for those, those emotions. Yes. And that's why it always goes there. Mm -hmm. It's because, you know, you can know that I'm, I'm confused. I feel lost mm -hmm. right now. Okay. Well, that's great. You feel lost. What does that look like mm -hmm. for you? What mm -hmm. is lost for you? You know, how we explain that more. And then through that questioning, people start to realize what are the things that are making me lost? Mm -hmm. And that's when the magic happens. That's when you can really start to work uh, with somebody to help them figure out all those triggers. Um, but yeah, I, I would say it, it almost always goes to that place. Mm -hmm. Were you about to quit? I mean, was that in the, in the realm of like, hey, I'm done being a chef. This is it. This is it's, it's over. I got to find a new life. I, I got to find a new job. Um, not maybe not through uh, the results of of my journey with the exam, um, but I think I, I would say that I've had several moments, uh, you know, in the 2020 time, 2021, mm -hmm. um, you know, because we we hit like an all time uh, high in the in the staffing crisis. Uh, it was a problem before, and now it's even more of a problem. Uh, so yeah, I think it's natural for for everybody to think like, where's the nearest exit? You know, so I think everybody has the the ability to go to that place where they're looking over their shoulder and saying, is there a quick out for me here mm -hmm. that's going to help me avoid having to actually be a part of the solution? Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess I've just always been the kind of person that that finds some kind of enjoyment out of finding that solution, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what's really kept me in it. Um because I, I do love the profession and I love the industry to the point where if I just leave, uh, how much do I really love it? You know, I mean, I, I feel like I owe it. It's done a lot for me. I feel like I owe it, um, you know, anything that I can give it to try to help it and, and the future uh, of it. Talk a little bit about uh, what an executive chef at a major country club actually does. Because I, I don't really know. I mean, I have an idea, but you've got 70 people. And so is most of your time on leadership and that kind of stuff, not, you know, uh, 
food prep and uh, recipes, menus, that kind of thing? Yeah, for me, um, I, I don't do a whole lot of cooking these days. I, I do like to get into the kitchen when I can, but uh, that's that's not very often. So the way that I view my position is to provide the resources to my team necessary to allow them to do uh, the job that I, I need them to do, you know? So we all have a vision, we all have a shared vision, uh, and they're the ones who make it happen. Uh, they're the ones who are in the trenches doing the work. Uh, my, my job is to provide them with the tools necessary to be able to do that successfully. Um, so it's, it, it is a lot of administrative work, uh, a lot of, uh, strategic work, uh, is, is really where probably I spend most of my time. Um, but yeah, leadership and, um, you know, teaching people communication and, and effective leadership so that my chefs can lead their team. Um, and then, you know, uh, Joe Cran, our, our general manager, he always talks about uh, managing emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, a big part of what it comes down to uh, is, you know, we're not just managing people, we're managing emotions. Um, and, and that's a big thing that I've adopted in my own philosophy as well. What, what in your opinion, what makes a, a, a excellent executive chef? I, I believe that an excellent executive chef is somebody who uh, has a sense of business uh, the acumen. You know, they, they're in tune with the financial responsibilities that they have in front of them. Um, and then also they, they learn about their people. They learn about, I think, any leader in general. Um, the more you can learn about the individuals that are working uh, for you and with you, the, the more effectively you can lead them and, and, and give them what it is that they need. I think uh, inclusive leadership um, and, and making sure that you're empathetic, which, you know, is a big buzzword right now that I also think is uh, not fully understood by the people who use it a lot. But having empathy for people and, and knowing what world they, they come from, you know, what do they go home to? And how does that maybe affect mm -hmm. how they perform? And what can I do to truly set this individual up for success, even if it looks a little bit different than what I might do for the person mm -hmm. next to them? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it, 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 it can get pretty cerebral for me. Um, and, and I believe that, that that's helped me out a lot is just having that connection. So uh, having the all or nothing, take the mountain uh, attitude before when you were coming up on, the, uh, it, it seems to me one of the hardest things, I, I know it's one of the hardest things for me personally, and I feel like it's hard for a lot of people is to develop a true balance. Right. Um, and so as you've undergone this journey with being a chef and, um, working, um, in the various, uh, industry fields and working now at Farmington, when you had this change, do you feel like that's been a part of your change is trying to work on a balance, obviously for your mental health, for your physical health, for, for the longevity of yourself in the career? And how has that worked? Yeah, balance is huge. And, and that's something that it seems to, to many people to be an unattainable uh, place to get to. And uh, again, I think if you break it down into its parts, um, a lot of people you know, we, we hear work-life balance all the time. Everybody's always talking mm -hmm. about work-life balance. And I think we need to rebrand this phrase altogether. It really bothers me uh, when people say the words work-life balance uh, because it basically what you're doing 
is work is generally the only word put before life in that equation, mm -hmm. right? So, and it is always viewed as a negative in that equation, right? So we instantly alienate work from our lives by saying, I need better work-life balance. Mm -hmm. If I came home from work one day and I looked at my wife, Hannah, and I said, you know, I, I really think I need a better marriage to life balance. I would probably, at, at best, I'd be sleeping on the couch, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, it, but, but that's what that equation does. That's uh -huh. how it's been designed and programmed into our heads, right? But you, you have a marriage life. You have mm -hmm. a social life, a financial life, a sex life, a, a work life. A, you have Parent all life. these things, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. It's all work as part of it, right? So I think when, when people start to, to figure that out, and that's something that, that I figured out, and I think setting boundaries mm -hmm. in my life has helped me a lot. You know, there's, there's the, um, I'm sure people joke about it at, at work now, but you know, everybody has their outgoing email message when they're away on vacation mm -hmm. and it always has the same tone to it. And, and the tone it always has is I have limited access to my email, yes. right? Yeah. Which, which basically means like, you know, I'm going to be looking at my email <laughs> when I'm not at work, but I may or may not be in the mood to get back to you. Right. Yes. Everybody knows that. So when I go on vacation or I have a few days off, my outgoing message says I'm out of the office mm -hmm. and I will not be checking email. I'll be back on this date. And when I am away and I'm with my family and we're on vacation, I do not, I've actually hidden my email icon mm -hmm. in the, in the last page of my apps. I, I turned off that, that tormenting little red dot mm -hmm. that tells you how mm -hmm. many messages mm -hmm. you have. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. never see it. Mm -hmm. And I just don't look at it. And, and just that one little thing is life changing for somebody who cons, I would look at my email every 10 minutes, mm -hmm. whether was I was it hard to do that. It was in the beginning. Yes. It was really hard. I'd be you unbelievably know? hard. It was really you hard. Would, you would literally fall over. <laughs> Seriously. And crumple up like the witch in the Wizard of Oz. You would melt. It would be so I'm tough. Melting. You know I'm what? Melting. I think it's going to be baby steps for me. I think my message in the future is going to be, um, you know, not that I have limited access to my email. I'll be like, in the event you send me an email, I'll most likely look at it, and then I'll determine whether or not I want to get back to you. <laughs> Over this two-week period, and if I deem it worthy, I will get back to you. Yeah, that's a great vibe. You're that's, that's it's a boundary. <laughs> subtle. subtle. It's a very subtle boundary. Oh, my. That's great. That's great. So, next frontier. You want to grow the what you want to grow the coaching what do you want to do i do i, I want to grow the coaching um you know i'm i'm super happy at farmington so i you know it, it's going to remain my primary hustle but uh, ultimately like big picture i would love to grow the coaching mm -hmm. uh i would love to be you know for coaching to be the thing i retire from uh when i'm, I'm too old and tired to be a chef mm -hmm. um and speaking is a big thing for me i i've i've been speaking at conferences for the last few years and, and been getting invited to speak uh, as, as a motivational or keynote speaker. And I absolutely love it. I, I love that. And when you speak, do you tell your story or does it depend upon the conference or what do you talk about? It depends on exactly what kind of message they want to hear. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've done the story thing a lot. Um, I did last year, I did a couple of sessions of morning mindset where I was seven and a, seven o'clock in the morning. I was way more positive in front of a group of people than they really wanted at that time mm -hmm. of the morning. But um, so I, I do some mindset stuff. Um, I'm speaking in March um, 
in Austin about effective communication and self-advocacy, which has become really kind of a new passion of mine is, is the whole negotiation world and body language mm-hmm. and things. So yeah, speaking, I would say if my, my dream, if I could say like, this would be the pinnacle for me would be to be on a Ted stage. That would be, Oh, uh, really? Okay. Yeah, I would absolutely love how, to get on a Ted and, stage. And you know, we do, there is a, uh, a Ted talks, uh, conference, I think here in, in Charlottesville. Oh, is there? Yeah. And, uh, in the summer, I believe where Ted talks are done. Oh, I didn't even know. Uh, yeah. Is like a TEDx thing. Yeah. TEDx. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's what it'd be. TEDx. Yeah. yeah. That would be the beginning. That would be, you know, if you can get on a TEDx stage, then you're, you know, I think you're, you're on your way to potentially being on the, the big Ted stage, but, uh, I would love to, I think I know who, uh, yeah, we should talk about that. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. You cutting deals over here? <laughs> hey, you know, you cut me you a little. Cl- on you cut, you cut me deals. a little clam chowder. Next time I'm at the club, <laughs> we can work something out. We can, we can, we can talk about that. Oh boy! Thank you for sharing. Yeah, no, my yeah. pleasure. Thank you for having me. R- really great stuff, Mike. You're, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, excellent uh, communicator. Obviously, you've got lots of practice, and we appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hicksy is broadcast for the world from Charlottesville, Virginia by Tom Hicks and Rob Stockhausen. Please like, follow, and share if you have enjoyed this conversation. Have an authentic day.